All right. April 17th, 2020. I'm Shreen Bishmaya in India, welcoming, welcoming you back to the P40 podcast with one of my favorite astrologers and beings and magical beings in this universe, Rick Levine. Thank you so much for meeting up with me today. Um, and, uh, you know, we're kind of continuing a conversation we had yesterday. So, but I think a lot of what we were talking about yesterday would be great to bring back in, but maybe, um, I mean, many people know who you are, but if there's anything you'd like to share about, since we're all like living in the present moment, what's happening for you right here, right now? <laughs> well, like so many people in the present moment, I am, um, I am someone who almost always knows what's going on. And I am someone who, to whom people come when they don't know what's going on, both clients, friends, lovers, ex-wives, children, parents when they were around. I mean, I am, I am a go-to person for what's happening. And right now, I don't have a fucking clue. I, I have no idea. Um, I, I, used to know, I used to know what was going on. I mean, in broad strokes, I have a really good frame of reference for what's going on. And part of that frame of reference is the uniqueness of this moment is, um, I mean, we, we have entered the mythic proportion, each and every one of us. And the epicness of this moment is that no one knows what's going on. Even the people who are supposed to know, even the people who have, um, who are in control, if there's any such thing, even the people who have engineered this, if there's any such thing, um, even the people who have been prophesizing this and talking about this as an event for years, I mean, everyone from every different perspective has a take on what's going on, but now as it's unfolding, everyone's lost the plot. We, we've lost the plot. And that is at once a totally frightening moment. And it's the moment that has to occur prior to any enlightenment liberation or the beginning of any hero's journey is the separation. I mean, and, and you know, the separation here is a primal separation because we are each and every one of us separated from the truth. We all know that we're not being told everything, even though that can't be true and that can't be true. I know I believe that, but that's crazy, but you still don't believe any of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, and as an astrologer, you know, we can stand back and look at this and, and see this. And then, I mean, I could talk for two hours without repeating myself easily about the history of the Saturn-Pluto uh, conjunction and opposition cycle. And we're in the midst of it. And we forget how potent that has been throughout our remembered history. I mean, from, you know, from, from the crucifixion of Jesus to, um, to Mohammed uh, uh, taking Mecca um, and declaring it the state of Islam to the Arab invasion of Spain, to the Catholic reconquering of Spain, to, um, to black death, um, you know, to, uh, I mean, in modern times, you know, World War I, the freedom of, of India, and of course, we in the West think the romantic 
you know, side of, you know, Gandhi, you know, winning the ultimate war against the British Empire without firing a shot. But somehow we forget or we forgot to be taught that a half a million people were killed, <laughs> you know, over the border uh, border skirmishes uh, between India and Pakistan. And of course, it's not lost on me that those border skirmishes are going on again right now, you know, flourishing. And we look at the repetition of, 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 of the Saturn-Pluto event as this. We in astrology know that if we only had one or two or three or five words to define Saturn, one of them would be boundary. One of them would be the absolute wall between what is and what isn't, or here and there, or fact and fiction, or, you know, or, or life and death. Saturn is the finality of that wall. However, with the discovery and familiarity of becoming more involved with the invisible universe and the moving into the trans-Saturnian planets, of which Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto were apparently just the first volley. I mean, NASA tracks uh, half a million things going around the sun, you know? And so the, the, the whole idea is here that Saturn is still, you know, the greatest, you know, of the great planets. You know, it's the, you know, Saturn is it, you know? However, Saturn ain't what it used to be because the line between physical and metaphysical has disintegrated. The line between death and rebirth or, or between this realm and the mythic proportion or this realm and the bardo states or however you want to frame it, that, that has disintegrated. When I was a kid, there were two forms of literature. There was fiction and nonfiction. Now, most of the things that I read are neither or somewhere in between. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. it, it, it's like, it, it's like there was no such thing. Things were either fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. And yet the entire realm of the unconscious and the material that's come up in the, um, in, in, in the electromagnetic mm -hmm. extension. When I say that, I'm talking about starting in the mid 19th century, as we began to expand, expand, extend, there's a good word, extend and expand combined into extend. Okay, as we began to learn about the, the expanded electromagnetic spectrum and we learned how to manipulate and use that to send information at the speed of light. I mean, you and I are here and now, but where is here and where is now? Because your now is the middle of my tomorrow and my now is your last night, you know, and where is here? Because here you are in my living room in Redmond, Washington. And for you, you know, here is, you know, up above the backwaters of Kerala, India, you know, we're in different, we're, we're, we're in different years. And yet there's something that is, so where I'm going with this <laughs> is that, is, is that as we pushed beyond Saturn, where we live in a world where Bucky Fuller noted that 99% of all scientific research was occurring in areas of the universe that are not perceptible, <laughs> that we can't perceive with our, directly with our five senses. That's where the magic is. And of course, you're in India, in the Eastern you know, worlds, this is something that's not news to them, you know, because they've lived in this world forever. But it's now in the West, this confrontation to that um, is, is overwhelming. So 
part of what we're experiencing, like every Saturn, Pluto, you know, if Saturn is the limit and the boundary, Pluto is the disintegration of that boundary. It's the deconstruction, you know, of what is real. In the truest sense, it's Nietzsche's real meaning of nihilism, not the Nazi interpretation. But nihilism is basically that which is the highest that which is the most important, those thoughts which are at the pinnacle of the mountain eventually deconstruct and fall to the bottom and need to be reconstructed. You know, the phoenix arising from the ashes of the runes of destruction. And of course, the operative words here are ashes, runes, destruction. And so we are at a point where boundaries, Saturn, are being disintegrated. But instead of being disintegrated by a war or a new belief system, which is historically what we've dealt with as we track the Saturn-Pluto backwards, the boundaries now are being disintegrated by some unknown um, <laughs> zombie. Because, you know, viruses are not alive. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and, and you know, I'm, I find it humorous. Half the people in the world think that this, you know, that this um, pandemic is just a media myth and it's really nothing at all. And some of these people are crazy and some of these people actually have good scientific justification for saying that this whole thing is being blown out of proportion and the way we've blown it out of proportion is actually turning it into the event. And then we have the other half of the people in the world who say that this is the end of the world. So we... So I, I've now, you know, the story of Schrodinger's cat, you know, you know in, in quantum physics, um, it used to be that things could be predicted and there were, you know, one way or another. And without going into the experiment in great detail, um, uh, Schrodinger won a Nobel Prize for basically coming up with laws of mathematics that, that basically said that if there's a 50-50 chance of some event happening, and that event actually causing the death of a cat that's used in his thought experiment. And, and we wouldn't know whether that cat was dead or alive, but in, in the old way of thinking, we would say, well, the cat's either dead or alive. It's a 50-50 chance of being dead and 50 right. chance being alive. But in quantum physics, because it's all based upon lack of causation and based upon probability, in the Schrodinger quantum way of saying it, is the cat is neither dead nor alive mm -hmm. until the event is observed. Right. Once the event is observed, the quantum function is popped and, it be, and reality then is observed. So this is, as far as I can consider, if I hear one more person saying something, this won't kill the virus or that won't kill the virus, you can't kill a virus because it's not alive. There is no life function in a virus. It's just, it's just DNA or RNA, a long chain complex ribonucleic acid wrapped in a protein lipid shell, hard shell. And, and, and you can't kill it because it's never alive. So what we're experiencing, my dear friend, is Schrodinger's zombie apocalypse. Wow. We don't even know whether it's dead or alive and and we're being killed by by zombies that have come back to life in us and they're in and so this whole thing is it it we're living in a work of fiction. And half of me is absolutely fascinated and enjoying it and amazed that I get to live in this amazing moment and the other half of me is like scared shit, like what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I'm done. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's like we're drowning in disinfectant and toilet paper. All this is, well, no, everyone's getting bombarded. <laughs>
Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Where do we go from here? I guess is the next question. Like, so what do you do when people come to you and ask you questions that are used to you having the answers? What are you saying? Are you this? What you I'm, just I'm, I'm, I'm telling them that if anyone gives you an answer, get the hell out of there because they don't know, including me. I mean, I, I, I can certainly help you paint a perspective of this. Um, but, but, but if I were you, I would not believe anything that I told you. In fact, I don't believe anything that I'm saying right now, not because I don't trust me, but because everything we believe is based upon our brain being fed down a reality tunnel that intellectually we knew was a reality tunnel, but now we know for sure because it, 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 it's like the, that, um, the Truman game movie. It's like this whole thing yeah. is a movie set that someone has pulled the rug out from under and all of a sudden everyone's looking, holy smokes, that's not what I thought it was. That's right. not what I thought it was. Well, and you and I were speaking yesterday about how this feels like, I, I was likening it to the judgment archetype in the tarot, of the 20th major arcana. And that feeling of like we're coming out of this grave, like we're we're awakening, and it's almost like we're still in a body, but it it's as if we've died and we're getting to do a judgment day survey. A lot of people have told me they've even been having this feeling about their life, like in their dreams, they're rehashing old memories in their dreams, like all the important events in their dreams, or even in their waking life, all this really deep nostalgia as if they've died. And they're doing this whole, you know retrospective review about what's happened to them up until now. And like, obviously some people are even thinking, you know, what have we done to nature? Hopefully a lot of people are thinking this, but there's just this feeling like this judgment day feeling and you were likening it to your, um, all your interests when you were studying the Tibetan book of the dead. And I thought that might be interesting to share. Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's several ways to go here. The Tibetan book of the dead um, is, um, as, as I am sure you know, and many of your listeners probably know, um, it, it, it it's obviously comes from the Tibetan Buddhist um, culture, and it ostensibly is a series of passages that are read to the, um, the, to the deceased body that no longer carries the consciousness, but that becomes a focal point to say, to bring the messages to the now disincarnated uh, consciousness as it begins its journey um, into these realms of consciousness that do not have physicality attached to them. And, and the beginning of the Tibetan book, um, the probably bad English translation goes something like, oh, nobly born, listen well you are about to embark on a great and wondrous journey. The Rick Levine or the Shireen game is about to cease <laughs> or has ceased. And, 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 and you, you are now on this journey. Now, the thing is, is that the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead in Tibetan is called Bardo Thodol. And um, Bardo, um, as many people know, is a Tibetan word that describes um, uh, a state of consciousness without physicality attached to it. It's normally attributed to the states of consciousness between death and rebirth. 
kind of what you were talking about earlier the 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 ghost realm of i've died but i've but i but i'm not reborn yet uh, the stage of you know the phoenix not broken out of the shell the state of the butterfly after the caterpillar but before the butterfly that that liminal in between um, kind of kind of space Yes. That's neither dead nor alive. Uh, we're back to Schrodinger's cat. Now, um, so, so in the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, though, the Bardo Thodol, Thodol is one of those interesting words that Tibetan has many of them that you, it takes about a paragraph to translate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have, they have words that are, this word means um, liberation achieved through the visual sensing. Mm. Thodol means liberation or enlightenment that's achieved by recognition upon hearing. Now it's and and so basically what you're 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 voicing you're in the Tibetan Book of the Dead into the Bardo states a vibration that the consciousness can hear. But and become enlightened or freed, but they can't do that unless they've heard it before. Mm. Why do I say that? Because it's through recognition, and you can't recognize something unless you've already cognized it. Right. The time to get the teaching of how to sail a ship is not in the middle of the hurricane. This is the magic of any spiritual practice. This is the magic of yoga. This is the magic of, is like if you have the practice and then you find yourself in that spot mm -hmm. and you don't know what to do, all it takes is one tiny voice that comes from a place either inside or from outside that says, Rick, this is where you are, remember? <gasps> Shit, I know exactly what to do. I've practiced this my whole life. Boom, and you go into motion. And, yes. and the interesting thing about the Tibetan Book of the Dead is that when you read it to a spirit who has studied it in their life, then this frees them because they can get the message and, 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 not, and not be confused by yes. what's going on. Now, just to finish up this Bardo thing before we move on, although that'll be sitting in the background, is that my first... Um, inclination uh, or first recognition there's that recognize my mm -hmm. first cognition um, you can't have a first you have to have a cognition first my first um, cognition that there was a thing called the Tibetan Book of the Dead was in when I was a freshman in college in 1967 and this was in um, I went to college at Stony Brook University outside of New York City um, and for me, you know, like many people say, the 60s was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, for me, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll, and astrology. And that's where it all kind of came into, in, into some sort of like a stew pot. And one of the books that I came across very early on that year was a book called The Psychedelic Experience, a user's manual based upon the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it was by um, uh, it, it was by um, Timothy Leary, co-authored by Timothy Leary, um, Dr. Richard Alpert, who many people know as Ram Das, yeah. um, and Ralph Metzner, 
who um, was uh, a teacher at California Institute of Te um, uh, Integral Studies and uh, just passed away just uh, a year ago or so. Um, and this book basically took the Tibetan Book of the Dead and basically repurposed it to help people understand and to move through the spaces that occur when one does a strong entheogenic substance that basically doesn't kill the body, it kills the ego. And, and the process of ego death and ego rebirth is actually not only the same as the process of physical death and physical rebirth with the big distinction that you stay in the body, but it actually is a deeper teaching and meaning of the Tibetan book itself. In fact, the latest mm, translation popularization of the Tibetan book of the dead um, is by Rinpoche um, Lama um, uh, Sogyal Rinpoche um, and Sogyal Lama Sogyal Rinpoche, sorry. Um, and Sogyal Rinpoche basically titled his book or his work, the Tibetan book of the living and dying. Right which kind of changes the perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mentioned when we talked the other day mm -hmm. that William Blake, who we both agreed was like, you know, he's like one of these Western mystics who actually got it. Yes. Uh, he, you know, he was there. And, um, and, and he wanted uh, on his gravestone as his epitaph, he wanted William Blake, born 1751, died many times since. You see, every time we die, even if it's a little death, you know, in, in orgasm, whether it's a merging with something where we have to go outside of our ego, drop the ego, and that can be done either in ecstasy, and stasis is a good Saturn word because it's about the boundary, yeah. and ecstasis means to go beyond Saturn, it's beyond stuff, it's beyond the stuff. And so when we have that ecstasis in sexuality, and it's not, uh, it's not about the sexuality, it's about the intimacy where we merge ego, when we drop our ego, that is an ego death. Yeah. By the same token, we can experience that when, when we're a kid and we go, um, I want chocolate ice cream for dessert, and mom says, no. <laughs> and we go into a temper tantrum and whatever, we've just experienced an ego death. Which might be we experience awesome. ego death and rebirth thousands of times through our lifetime, maybe, maybe hundreds of times a day. And yet when we begin to realize the pattern, the pattern is always the same. And the pattern is a three-step pattern where we have a death, which is boom, something happens. And at that moment, there's just the lightning strikes. We're at one with the lightning. Um, um, it, the Buddhists call this the clear light of Buddha, the clear light. It basically is, there is no I to say, wow, I am feeling this, this is amazing, because, you, because there's no subject object. There's no I that can say I. All right, and anyone who's done any sort of meditation or spiritual work, not only in Buddhism, but in any of the Eastern um, traditions, practices, spiritualities, philosophy, psychologies, whatever you want to call them, um, understands that, that the I is not running the show, it's the illusion um, of I that runs the show. But when we drop that I for that moment, there's nothing, there, there's just um, one in the same. Everything, I am you as you are me as we are all together, goo 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 There is no, there's no boundary between you and, you and me. And mystics 
um, and avatars live in that state where, where there is no boundary between themselves and the rest of the universe that, that can be sustained, not by normal people or not by every person. Yeah. Um, at, that is only sustained in most cases um, momentarily because the next thing that begins to happen is that we get, we get bombarded by sensibilia, um, sensory impressions. And they create this subject-object duality that um, is basically um, the second bardo, the second of the three stages. And in the second bardo, um, there's still not a connection, a groundedness. There's still no physicality, no body even. Um, but in the second bardo, there is these wide swings of, of this, then that, and I hate you, mom, I want my ice cream, and oh no, it's okay, and where's my boat, and where, you know, I just, sh shit runs through our brain, and everything becomes the next distraction or fragmentation, um, and anyone who's read much of Herman Hess knows that many of his books focus on that second bardo, yeah. where in Steppenwolf there's the uh, magic theater, uh, you know, there's this idea um, that, um, you know, that all these things are going on and whatever door we open, there's another aspect, oh crap, and the, you know, and, and, and so, and of course, as I would imagine you know, um, you know, Hess was a long time patient of, um, of Carl Jung's. And yeah. so when we're reading, when we're reading Hess, we're actually reading a literary interpretation of one person's experience of Jungian, anal Jungian analysis. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's yeah. the magic of Hess. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's a brilliant writer and a brilliant storyteller. But in the second bardo, there's always a subject and object differentiation, which happens in our lives, but in our lives, the subject-object differentiation is more solid because Saturn says, my subject is my physicality, and, that, and beyond that, I end. That's where the rest of the world is. Mm -hmm. But in the psyche, it's not like that at all. Mm -hmm. Now, at some point in time in that journey through this second bardo of collective unconscious, of myth, of archetype, which was, of course, Jung's playground, um, dreams, all of that, you know, kind of gravitates back and forth between um, the third, between the second bardo, and then at some point in time, there's this sense of longing, a sense of, I want a pizza. I remember Michael Luton once giving a lecture and talking about this, and, and saying that there I am floating around in the ethers and all of a sudden it's, I want a pizza. <laughs> it's all it takes is, and that becomes the hook. Yeah. You, know, and, you know, it could be a longing for, 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 for suckling at the breast. It could be the longing for a sexual experience for someone in memory that you knew someplace, whatever, but it's a hook. Yes, and yeah. at that hook, that begins the tumbling down in through the third and final bardo, which is the bardo of, um, of needs and wants and desires and frustration and sexuality and jealousy and envy and constriction. And now Saturn is making us smaller and smaller as we're being forced from this infinite dimension reality into the birth canal that is, I can't even breathe and I'm kind of pushing on through. And then all of a sudden, 
Yeah. And I'm reborn and there's no Bardos. And here I am in physical being and look, I have fingers and toes, you know, and that starts all over again. So the magic of this, and we talked about this very briefly, is yeah. that is, is that although the natural process of this is death, first Bardo, um, um, clear light, second Bardo, subject object differentiation, third Bardo, sexuality and rebirth. Yes. The psychoanalytic um, movement that really began its origins in the late 19th century when we had electromagnetism proliferating and yeah. we we're being pushed into these invisible realms and we had the rise of theosophy and animal magnetism um yeah. we had mesmer and charcot and you know in paris this whole idea of of what is the magic of the of the of the energy that's not physical and um and freud went to a, a an exhibit in paris a demonstration from a French doctor, um, Charcot, I think Joseph Charcot, I think. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it was on hypnotism and it basically blew Freud's mind and he went back to Vienna and, um, and he was a lousy hypnotist and he basically couldn't hypnotize people, but he saw what was there and what was the, for him, the inkling of what needed to be brought out in these things that were considered to be dis-ease, the big ravaging disease at that time, you know, was something that, that we call conversion hysteria. Yeah. And, and let's not lose the fact that hysteria comes from the Greek word hyster, which is for womb. And so technically hysteria was a woman's disease of having too many feelings, you know, um, and they were converting them into, I can't hear you or, or, or repetition, repetitious behavior. And so Freud basically, like a Taurus, said, I'm going to figure this out. And he began to use dreams as a way, this is in the 1890s, actually at the height of the once every 500 year um, Neptune-Pluto um, conjunction cycle that yeah. was exact in the early 1890s. And you had the rise of mysticism and theosophy and Madame Blavatsky and, um, and, um, and the church, um, um, Christian science and, and so on. Pluto, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but Freud took a different tact and he used mercury, the psychopomp, the, the, the guider of souls back and forth between this realm and the hell realms. He, Mercury, the planet of talk, and he developed this thing that we now call talk therapy. That's right. All talk therapy comes from Freud. People can get down on Freud, politically incorrect, this, that, whatever. They don't have a clue as to what the full dynamic was because what Freud did was he, in, almost like in a one-person kayak, he pushed against this force that was, he called it the id, the life force um, it, it, that is partly the pleasure principle, but this energy that's life energy that goes out. And he basically got in his little kayak and said, I'm going to fight my way against this force to figure out where it's coming from. And I have this image of Freud, the Taurus, yes. paddling up Niagara Falls in a one-person kayak, and people saying, you can't do that. There's nothing there. It's just coming at it. And he's going, no, I'm going to do this. And he paddles and paddles, and he digs deeper. And through his, um, through his work of, of what we now call psychoanalysis, 
or the analysis of the psyche. I mean, remember, the, there wasn't even a word unconscious. I mean, words like projection and, 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 and transference and resistance. And, and um, I mean, these are all, and ego even was not used in that sense. These are all words that he coined to define what he saw as he got to the river that was like a big lake at the top of Niagara Falls. And he went, holy crap. This is where all that's coming from. And he created maps to help therapists figure out how to get people around in this territory so they could manage the water coming down the falls without it killing them. Yes. Now, of course, into the picture comes Jung, who never quite was the Freudian that some people would like to think, as opposed to some other uh, key players in that whole tradition that really were Freudians and then broke. Um, and I think of Wilhelm Reich or, or, or Wilhelm Reich um, as maybe the key person, because people talk a lot about the impact of the break between Freud and Jung. But although they both suffered from that break, um, people don't realize that, that, um, that Freud had handpicked um, Wilhelm Reich to be the inheritor of the Psychoanalytic Institute. He had basically created a mechanism whereas he was his wonderkind and he was going to take over until he started teaching. <laughs> and right away, that wasn't going to work because Reich took this whole thing is like almost a step further than Jung in a kind of crazy way because Jung was very interested in going beyond Freud's third bardo and pushed back into the second bardo backwards and came up with concepts that we now call the collective unconscious or, you know, these, you know, the whole, what has become transpersonal psychology and archetypes and, and, and the whole hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and all of that has kind of in a way come parallel form um, out of the rise of um, in the 20th century is the confrontation with the unconscious, the invisible, the quantum reality. And you can kind of probably package all that up into Finnegan's wake. But that's another story. Um, and you know, you know something that I discovered when I attacked Finnegan's wake, oh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago. And I say attacked, I still, I mean, to me, it's like a, a life work of sorts. But what I, what I learned, and most people don't know this, is that Joseph Campbell's first published book back in the early 30s was a book called A Skeleton Key to F Understanding Finnegan's Wake. I did not know. And Finnegan's Wake is basically a deep dive into the unconscious. I mean, it's a book that is so, so unsaturnined, you know, that um, you know, that, that, that uh, people, people, no one gets it. I mean, I, when I read it and I, and I read it often, I mean, I read a few pages and I feel like I just heard a Dylan song, you know, that wasn't finished in his mescaline days or something. Um, I've no, but I feel like I'm standing in front of a Jackson Pollock painting or listening to a Dylan song where it's, oh my God, this is amazing. I have no idea what it is. I have no, I, I don't know what just happened. I don't know who the characters are, but I know that this is important. Yep. So anyhow, but this whole deep dive into the unconscious, Finnegan's Wake, quantum physics, um, and, and, and Jung, and, and Wilhelm Reich basically took it a step further because he said, no, we can actually reclaim the first bardo. Wasn't his languaging. Mm -hmm. But Freud firmly believed 
that neurosis was a necessary byproduct of civilization. In his next to last book, Civilization and Its Discontent, I mean, he basically, and this was after Totem and Taboo, um, he makes a case for um, the more civilized we become, the more neurotic we'll become, the more therapy we will need because we need to manage our neuroses. And Reich said, bullshit, we can cure neuroses because, and and one of Reich's first books, and this is very telling, um, was was a book called, well, his two first books were uh, were The Psychology of Mass Fascism. I love that book. And uh, The Function of the Orgasm. And and Reich basically said that he see Reich was reading Karl Marx while he was studying Sigmund Freud, and what he realized was that Marx hit a huge nail, but not quite on the head. And and Reich said, you know, the working class is not being suppressed economically; they're being suppressed sexually. And as long as as long as they're brought into an environment where they can't own their sexuality male and female with very different trajectories, but a similar result that result or that, and that is the either unconscious repression or the conscious suppression basically creates a weakened state where the mother, the father, the church or the state can basically own control and have someone in submission. And so Reich became convinced that the only revolution that would change everything was a revolution where people became sexually woke. And in fact, he was kicked out of uh, Germany um, for organizing factory workers and teaching them about sexuality. And before I leave that little punch, that little topic, I have to come back to what I would consider a punchline here from our buddy Bill Blake, William Blake. who in the marriage of heaven and hell said, I have heard from the voice of hell that the earth will be destroyed at the end of 6,000 years. I've heard this from the voice of hell. At that time, the cherub will leave its guard at um, at the tree of life and all will be consumed and will become holy, whereas now it's finite and corrupt. Next line, key line. This shall come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. What? This shall come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. For if our doors of perception, meaning our sense organs, if our doors of perception were cleansed, then everything would appear as it is, infinite and holy. Now, it was that passage that um, Aldous Huxley used to title his two essays about his mescaline experiences, Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He wrote an essay called Heaven and Hell, and he wrote one called The Doors of Perception. Right, okay. Jim Morrison did an acid trip. Someone turned him on to Huxley. He then found William Blake, and he named his group The Doors. I didn't even know that connection. Absolutely true story. And when you look at their charts, Blake's and Morrison side by side, it's like this person's a reincarnation. I mean, it's not quite that simple or linear, but their charts are are crazy crazy in the resonance that they have for one another. Blake and, Anyhow, Blake, Blake and Jim Morrison? Yes. I, I can see that. I've studied both of their charts. I had never made that connection. That's so fascinating. Yeah, well, it's not an obvious thing because it has to do with a figure that um, I, uh, I, I wouldn't say discovered, but I began exploring back 40 years ago based upon the five-pointed star because most aspects in astrology are based upon divisions by 12. Mm -hmm. So we divide a circle 
by one and call it a conjunction, and two, we call it an opposition, and three, we call it a trine, and four, we call it a square, and six, we call it a sextile, and 12, we call it a semi-sextile or a quincunx. But we skip over the numbers that don't divide into 12 evenly. And it was the great mathematical genius, Johannes Kepler, who came up with this um, breakthrough that, that the planets are actually music, like, like Pythagoras had hypothesized. And that when you divide the um, cycle of a planet by five, you come up with a quintile, which is a five-pointed star. And he basically discovered the quintile and the biquintile and the half square and the square and a half. Those are all Keplerian um, uh, introductions into astrology. But what's interesting is that the five-pointed star, the quintile, is the only way to geometrically get to the golden mean, the divine proportion, which is the key to all the art and beauty and music and everything. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the Da Vinci Code, you know, the Fibonacci number series, um, the Fibonacci number series is basically gets closer and closer and closer to this magical number called phi or the golden mean or the divine proportion, the number that Kepler said was the ratio that God used to create like from like. Kepler's words, exact Kepler's wow. words. And, and the way the Greeks who knew about them and the Egyptians, I mean, the, the, the Great Pyramid um, in Giza, if you take a measurement from the top of the pyramid down to the base, yeah. right to the middle of the base, that's called the apothem in solid geometry. Mm. And if you divide the apothem by the distance from the base to a corner, that comes out to 1.61803 to some ridiculously accurate number. So the Great Pyramid was basically built on the, the, the ratio of the divine proportion. And of course, the stonemasons knew this. All the magical cathedrals in Europe are all built with the ratio of 1 to 1.6 or 1.62 or 1.6. 180339 dot 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 dot. The number can't be expressed in decimals, but it can be expressed geometrically exactly with a compass and a straight edge by making a five pointed star. Wow. Because when you make a five pointed star, every line on that five pointed star is intersected in three places, dividing the line into a short length and a long length. Oh. And the long length divided by the short length is exactly the same as the whole length divided by the long length, which is 1.618.03. It is the, and the Greeks used the compass construction of a five pointed star to create these incredible places like the Parthenon, which is built on the golden mean. Um, and the stonemasons built all the churches so that the windows and the doors and the rooms all had a one to 1.62 ratio. Now, what does this have to do with astrology and with everything else we're talking about? And it's crazy magical because, because um, the planets hum frequencies. They're not just rocks in space. Mm -hmm. And Venus hums at 224 and a half Earth days to make one complete turn around the sun. Whereas the earth takes 365 and a quarter, 2.24 days to go one complete time around the sun. Those who study astrology know this thing called the Venus star, which means that the Venus and earth from the sun's point of view line up 
five times every eight years. Huh, those are Fibonacci numbers. One plus one equals two, two plus one equals three, three plus two, you keep adding the number behind, three yeah. plus two equals five, five plus three equals eight, five and eight are Fibonacci numbers. Venus makes five connections with Earth every eight years, and they do it 72 degrees apart. Wow. And, and every eight years, it comes back to within a degree of where it did it eight years ago. So here's the crazy thing. You divide Earth, 365 and a quarter, by Venus, 224 and a half, equals 1.62. Venus is the golden mean to Earth. What is the golden mean? The golden mean is beauty. It's love. It's, a, it's, a, it's aesthetic perfection. It's the ratio that, that made da Vinci and Albrecht Dürer and the Renaissance uh, artists, they were so enamored, they would work that, num that ratio into every, the Mona Lisa. Matter of fact, the opening scene to the Da Vinci Code, and Da Vinci was totally into the golden mean, but the Mona Lisa, her face is the you know, one to 1.6, yeah. the eyes, the nose, the wit, everything in that. Wow. And so, and so coming back round to this whole thing of, of the Bardos and all of that is yeah. Venus is an interesting point. It's because Venus has a lot to do with where the ideal of perfection or beauty mm. is manifest physically. Because yeah. Venus in Taurus is physical. Yes. Venus in Libra is intellectual or conceptual. Right. But here we are at a place where the boundary between physical and intellectual mm -hmm. has disintegrated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it, it, it's like the, the, the two are hard to tell apart. We have fake news. We have, no one knows what's going on. No one knows what's going on because in the unconscious, everything is happening all at once. There's no Just timeline. pick your dream. Yeah. Yeah, there's no time. Anyhow, I went on a crazy, crazy ramble, that was, but no, that's you know, what I do. No, I love that you do that. It's like, you know, what is the, what are those called? The great courses? You heard of that? Where people sign up and it's like you get to like have these amazing, you're, you're like a great course and you're like all the great courses in one talking to you. I feel like I just went back into like the best moments of my academic training, you know, at the University of Michigan, like all my favorite moments, all when oh, I was a philosophy I love it. Coming back together. Yeah, when I was in... Um, undergraduate I had this degree called the um it's called general studies people used to make fun of me for it but I loved it because I could create whatever I wanted and you were like you, you were just like a survey of everything I was studying it was like a mixture of all the philosophy and William Blake it's great so yeah, Blake Blake I mean Blake is one of I mean I, I have a whole lineage I mean Pythagoras and Kepler for sure but you know in and 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 of course off on the side you know there's you know cousin Rumi and Hafez you know, and that whole piece, um, and Lao Tzu, and all of that oh, stuff. Oh, but, but in the West, I mean, certainly, um, certainly William Blake, and certainly um, Freud and Jung, and certainly um, Hess, uh, and and I mean, and many, many, many other people. Um, but uh, and Wilhelm Reich, who um, who oh, to, just to continue that thought, is that Reich basically said, no, there's a way that we can actually integrate the fullness of the body, and we do not have to be neurotic to live in a society. The problem, of course, is how do you be sane in an insane society, yeah. you know, and, and here comes round the, you know, the whole issue that, um, that my buddy Bruce Lipton would uh, refer to as epigenetics, and that is, you know, and that is the genes are in some ways 
ultimately less important than the environment. A healthy organism becomes sick in a sick environment, and a sick organism becomes healthy in a healthy environment. Mm. And, um, and Reich was so far ahead of his time, as many of your listeners probably know, um, the FDA basically freaked out on him because he was curing incurable diseases with his um, metaphysical, physical therapies, yeah. um, including cancer, bursitis, rheumatoid arthritis, I mean, it, diseases that were degenerative. And so the FDA busted him. They locked up all of his papers, uh, you know, for 50 years. Um, and they tried him for, you know, whatever the law is practicing, medical quackery. There's a, there's a, yeah. a real name for that. But he was tried as a um, quack physician. And, you know, this guy was a, you know, grand um, aristocratic um, German, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very good and very um, um, arrogant in his knowledge. I think of Nietzsche who once uh, wrote, um, when one is speaking of something great, one must speak with humility and arrogance. <laughs> and, um, and, and so um, Wilhelm Reich refused to testify in his trial because he said true science cannot be tried in a state court of law. And he went to jail and died. So here we are in a situation where the culture in a way is all of a sudden for many people and again, people are experiencing this on very different levels. Sure. You know, half the people are seeing that this is the moment of great awakening, and yeah. half of this people are seeing it that this is the moment in which medical science can triumph and prevent us all from dying. And until we triumph, it's basically, um, you know, people are going to die by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And so people are in very different realities around all of this. Yeah, very different. Um, which is part of, uh, which, huh? Yeah, very different realities which is part of the magic and part of the, the craziness. Um, but in a way, the, you know, the word apocalypse, which I referred to this as, you know, Schrodinger's is a dead or alive zombie, viruses are dead or neither dead nor alive, you know, Schrodinger's zombie apocalypse. The only word we didn't mess with is apocalypse, which means to uncover. You know, it's, it's the reveal. In fact, people think of Apocalypse Book of Revelation, but they don't make a connection that the word apocalypse means to reveal the truth. Yeah, no, we don't talk about that. And so what's happening here is people are getting glimpses of the wizard behind the curtain. I like to say I'm the wizard in front of the curtain <laughs> you know, for all my foibles and human shortcomings. But the fact is that... Um, that that there that there are so many different little pieces of of the rabbit hole from the pharmaceutical industrial complex to the vaccine thing um, to the anti-vaxxers to the truthers to the Bill Gates to the to the Illuminati to the QAnon to the um, electromagnetic spectrum to 5G to I that all of these. Uh, and I'm not judging any of them as true or not true. I'm just saying that they're all out there and they're all in this same stew. And whatever it is you believe, you don't know the truth. And that's what everyone is realizing now that, you know, oh, that's stupid. You watch the media go to work on 5G, which all of a sudden is just 
you know, popped into people's minds, although the research and the stuff has been there for years, electromagnetism in general. I, I um, have a cl client friend, uh, Katie Singer, who wrote a book called The Electronic Silent Spring. She wrote that book, geez, uh, 2000. Um, may, maybe seven or eight years ago, yeah. you know, and people know Rachel Carson's Silent Spring about DDT and it beginning the movement of, of the attempt to eliminate poisons from our environment. Um, but, um, but we haven't, uh, glyphosate, Monsanto, blah, 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 haven't done very well. Yeah. Um, and we wonder why we're, we're dying of diseases because we are poisoning ourselves. Yes. And, and Katie's book, um, the electronic silent spring, um, you know, that was way before 5G. But the point is now all of a sudden when people are waking up to the fact that maybe some of this stuff isn't healthy, um, I've seen in the last few days articles in from Wired Magazine to the New York Times to on CNN, um, basically making fun of any idiot who would connect the 5G, you know, or, you know, to, uh, to this virus. I mean, I saw one commentator say, I mean, it is just so frightening to think that there are people so stupid that they actually believe that, that the virus can be carried on 5G. Now, I don't know anyone who's saying that, except yeah. the person who is saying it to make people look stupid. But right. the point here is not what you believe. It's that none of it's true and it's all true. That, Where that do we go from here? Exactly. That, that's the question. You know what? I think that's the, the guiding question. Where do we go from here? Because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere well, to and, and, and going back to Joseph Campbell, you know, the first step on the hero's journey, you know, is the betrayal or the, you know, the separation um, or the, um, the, the ego death. I mean, in a way, although he doesn't refer to me, he might in some of his writing, um, but what we think of as the betrayal or the separation yeah. that sends, you know, everyone, whether it's Harry Potter, you know, or Luke in Star Wars, you know, or, 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 or Zarathustra, yeah. uh, whoever it is that goes on the journey goes into the underworld, into the, you know, into the, it's not the way I thought it was. It deals with grief and separation and, 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 and obstructions and resistance and then eventually can overcome it and then comes back and teaches, then comes back and brings like Zarathustra. You know, yeah. I'm like a honeybee returning with the honey. Yeah. Um, but, but in a way, where do we go from here is we acknowledge that we have entered into a realm that no training has prepared us for other than maybe spiritual training. Yeah. The information doesn't work. And, and I love to, um, um, you, you had mentioned when we talked the other day um, about the role of um, this elongate, no, that's a wrong word, um, this extended period of time of Mercury in Pisces doing a circular dance with Neptune who's in a forever in Pisces, if you will. Yes. And, 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 and I think that even though we're looking at Uranus and Taurus, we're looking at the Saturn-Pluto thing, we're looking at Jupiter now coming and Mars, I mean, we're looking at all these things. It's easy to overlook the deepest or maybe uh, the most functional culprit in all of this on a very deep level um, be, being Neptune. Yes. 
Yes, especially with virus, I always think of that. But it's interesting, you know, especially since I'm spending so much time in India, the nodes, like how we overlook the nodal influence in Western astrology and how in India that's like number one. Like so two, my career was like that eclipse on Christmas. That's it. That's what it's yep, yep, yep. Well, that, that Christmas eclipse, um, I was in Singapore where it was total. I went to Singapore because I was already in Indonesia. Right. So I spent three days in Singapore and I, 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 it was a beautiful sunny day. It was an annular eclipse, so it didn't get dark, but there was a definite, the ring, you know, I mean, it was amazing. Wow. Um, and it was very strange being in a field by the mar in the marina in Singapore with, I don't know, maybe four, six, 8,000 people, um, you know, on a, on a hot sunny day um, with telescopes and electronic gadgets and kind of all being amazed by this. But that eclipse, and then, of course, the following eclipse, the day before the Saturn-Pluto. Yeah. No, those, see, but here's, I, 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 there's two things I want to touch base on. One is eclipses and one is Neptune. Yes. The thing about eclipses that people... Oh. There you are. You're back. We're back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, did you hear the thing about Jeff Green? No, that's where I got right before you said that. Tell me. Okay. So, so many years ago, Jeff said about my third house Pluto, which is trying the sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, Mercury being my chart ruler in the 11th house, Venus and yeah. I'm sorry, um, Pluto in the third house and the midpoint of Pluto and my Aries stellium is my Gemini rising. Mm -hmm. And he said, your job is to basically through words to destroy people's um, sense of what they thought was real. So here's the thing about nodes. Um, okay, so the word node is a Greek word, which means not, K-N-O-T. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when they talk about the node of a cancer cell, it's just basically where, where reality is tied up in a knot. Mm. You know, it's where there's a lump. That's the yeah. node. Yeah. And we particularly focus on the nodes of the moon. But when you're, if you're standing at a still pond and you throw a rock in the pond and watch the ripples extend outward, you know, the water isn't moving outward the energy transference is moving outward. If you put a float like a bobber and then on still water and then throw the rock, mm -hmm. as the ripples come through, the bobber just goes up and down in place and the ripples keep moving through. Ah. Unless you're a surfer and you catch the wave, mm -hmm. but that's something else. Um, it's an important piece of this though. Mm -hmm. um, but but the, basically what happens is those ripples will extend out until it becomes smooth again. Now, if you throw two rocks simultaneously in the water and they both make ripples going out and those ripples are moving, where those ripples intersect, they make nodes. Because what happens is that the ripples keep moving 
but the nodal points as to where those waves intersect, they don't move. They hold their position. And in fact, and here's where it gets important, those points send out secondary waves. We call them interference patterns. So the points at which waves intersect create nodes or knots that then send out additional ripples. Wow. All right. So Maya, which a lot of people would, especially in the East in Vedic traditions, will associate with the nodes, you know, that, that Maya might be described as, you know, the veil, uh, the curtain that prevents us from seeing the true nature of reality. Yeah. All right. That veil is actually the interference patterns created by the ripples. So let me ask you a question. If I hit my hand on the desk here, what, what's real? What's, what's solid? No thing. There are no things in the universe. There are, the universe consists of no things. There are no things in the universe because things are just the result of interference patterns of ripples that are being created, rippling out from atom, atoms and molecules at the rate of hundreds of trillions of times a second. Hundreds, thousands wow. of trillions of times a second. The universe is blinking on and off. Hundreds of trillions. I mean, when, when you look at the color green, you see green, but that's just the trick of the mind. What you're actually seeing is ripples at, 560 trillion, 560 trillion cycles every second. And so the, the nodes of these very high, incredibly, we can't even imagine how high frequency these events are. When they intersect with each other, they create the illusion of solidity. I mean, a cosmic ray that is vibrating at the um, rate of trillions of trillions of cycles a second passes through physical passes through the earth as if it's not there. You know why? Because it's not there. <laughs> it's Maya. It's the illusion that we have of our reality tunnel. And of course, I love Albert Einstein's um, famous line that uh, reality is just an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. I love that, yes. <laughs> now, um, he also said that, that um, time is the universe's way of preventing everything from occurring at the same moment. Yeah. So, so we have nodes that are basically where things ripple into the three-dimensional appearance. And yes, the, the primal node is the moon around the earth and the earth around the sun, and where those two points intersect, they create the loudest intersection, you know, because a rhythm by itself doesn't, there's nothing to frame it against. There's no, there's no frame of reference. Right. But as soon as you have two rhythms, you have that frame of reference of when do those ripples intersect? Where do they meet? And in fact, when we have things like the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction or the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, those are like ripples meeting at the same place like a new moon is. Right. Um, so nodes are incredibly important and way beyond even what we think of. Now, here's another thing. I'm fascinated, yeah. I'm fascinated by 
when there are beliefs in different cultures that are either the same and the cultures are incredibly far apart or they're different for good reason. Uh, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an, an example. Um, you can say the planet Mars and go to pretty much any culture on the planet and they have a mythology that's fairly consistent with how we know Mars is. It's angry, it's red, it's, 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 you know, it's difficult to manage when it expresses, um, you know, Mars is how we create boundaries, how we conquer, how we defend, you know, all those things. And, and, and although people might have different nuances as to how malefic it really is, or as to what it might do in this culture versus that culture, generally it's the same. Yeah. Now, we take a look at something like garlic, Garlic in the Western tradition is considered to be a, um, a substance that keeps the vampires away. Yes. I mean, and I'm not making light of this. This is this, part of garlic's healing properties is that it prevents evil spirits from inhabiting a body. It's used to ward off evil. Yeah. Now, it comes in an environment of, you know, the um, Catholic tradition and the Eastern European tradition, in particular, I'm thinking in the cultures, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Poland, in Italy, in, in Greece, in the, in, yeah. the, in the Eastern European countries. Um, and, and in that tradition, things are basically, the Catholic Church um, is built upon the symbol of 90 degrees, the cross. It's if it's not real, it ain't real. Saturn, Satan, Saturn, Satan is the absolute delimiter of good and evil, period. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and in fact, you know, the fallen angel, Lucifer, comes through the gates of Saturn and becomes manifest in the three-dimensional world. Yeah. So in that realm, garlic is important mm -hmm. because it keeps all those non-physical things away, yes. which are frightening if you don't really believe they're real but they're real enough that you basically practice something to keep them away. Yes. Now let's jump to the sutras because in the Buddhist sutras, um, the sutras basically say you can't eat garlic. In Hinduism, in, in, the, in the Vedic tradition, you know, right. garlic is tamasic. It creates thickness in, in, in the body that creates desire. Right, rajasic. Think about Italy. Yeah. They, eat, they, eat, they eat a lot of garlic to keep the vampires away, but, but, they're, but they're enwrapped in their, in their sense of pursuit of, of desire and of beauty pleasure. and of love. So and, pleasure. Yeah, it's all now, in, in the um, Buddhist culture, um, the sutras basically forbid you from eating garlic. Do you know why? Why? Because the spirit guides don't like the smell. The spirit guides, so they don't get the good spirits either. Well, but but in in but in in Italy there are no good spirits; they're right. evil. Yeah. And in Buddhism there are no bad spirits; they're all spirits. They may have different cross purposes and whatever, right. you know. But 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 do you see how? Yes. That tells me something that's very real about garlic, because when you frame it in the cultures, all of a sudden, wow! You can see why these people framed. Um, whether it was good or bad so differently based upon what their assumptions were about reality and disincarnate yes. reality. Yes. Now, you look at the nodes and the difference in interpretation from the East and West I find fascinating. Yes. Because 
in the East, no, let's start off in the West, in modern Western yeah. astrology, yeah. where nodes have become more important since the advent of consciousness studies. Right. You know, I mean, it, it certainly, the nodes have become more important with evolutionary astrology, right. with the use of Pluto and the nodes and so on, and yeah. all planetary nodes for, for that matter. Yeah. Um, but, but nodes are, are, are basically considered to be bipolar. North node good, south node bad. This is in, this is in, the, in the West. No the North node is the purpose of the soul. It's where we're going. It's what we're, it's yeah. what we're aspiring towards. It's not about our physical reality, but it's like the soul came in and the south node is what we did in past lives or early childhood or our genetics. Yeah. It's yeah. what we learned in the past. It's what we, but, we, but, but Freud clearly showed that under pressure, there's this thing called infantile regression. Don't go to your south node under pressure. You've got to keep working toward the north node because that's good. Right. All right. Totally. And in Vedic astrology, you know, the north node ain't so good and the south node's worse. Yes. Why? Because it's all Maya. Because yeah. in the West, we assume that he who accumulates the most is successful. Right. We, whether those things are material so or we, we metaphysical, like we, still, uh, we, we still think that there is a purpose to all of this and that, and that it's not about illusion, it's about going in that direction, what Trungpa Chogyam Rinpoche you know, called you know, spiritual materialism, yeah. the idea that there's somewhere to go you know, yeah. in the spiritual pursuit. You know. yes. But meanwhile, in the in the east, the nodes, yeah, the south nodes can the south node can be more difficult. And I'm not a Vedic practitioner. You know, I know enough to be conversant and perhaps a little dangerous at times. But the fact of the matter is that again, looking at the difference in how we perceive them culturally tells me more about what they really are yes. than what either either people say. And based on that, Neptune. Okay, Neptune, great. and then I'm going to shut up. No, no, <laughs> don't shut up. No, no, we don't want to shut up. Nep Neptune, yeah. um, keyword for Neptune. I, oh, there's lots of keywords for Neptune. You know, I mean, look, um, Neptune only has one purpose in the universe, and that's to dissolve the hard edges of Saturn. Mm -hmm. You know, you put salt, Saturn, in water, Neptune, and the hard edges dissolve. Yeah. You know, things that don't melt or dissolve in water, you put them in alcohol called the universal solvent to the chemist. Because, and that's why we use alcohol as a cleanser because alcohol dissolves those things which don't dissolve in water. And therefore it takes the hard edges of the crystals of dirt or oil and it melts them. Yeah. So Neptune is basically about melting away the apparent surfaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the, and I remember that Rob Hand wrote, geez, I think it might've been in horoscope symbols a long time ago. He wrote, <laughs> it used to be said that Saturn was reality and Neptune was illusion. Whereas now we believe that Neptune may be reality and Saturn was the illusion there was one. Yes, I love that. And that especially <laughs> rings true right now. All right. So um, there's a whole lot of Neptune stuff we could go down that path, uh, I mean, for hours, because Neptune doesn't have any time attached yeah. to it. And, Very and connected hours. to the unconscious and the collective unconscious. 
my a very important keyword for Neptune is confusion. Yeah. Why? I mean, why do you think? Why do you think Neptune is associated with confusion? Because it, it's like a fog. It obfuscates. It's, it's right. weaving, weaving even more illusion. And All right. Rick, Rick, the etymologist, is going to come in here because the word confusion actually comes from two words. Con, Greek, which is like with, you know, like, you know, like a conjunction. Ah, right. you know, it's the same as. It's a, like a, you know, the C-O-N is together as yeah. one. Yeah. Fusion. Fusion. What does fusion mean? Like the merging. All right. So if I'm living under the illusion that I am Rick and you are Shireen, and then I become enamored with you, and then I kind of fall into your eyes, and then I think, God, you're amazing. And then I kind of get to a place where, you know what? I really love you. Mm -hmm. and I lose all sense of my boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then I go, wait a minute, this is confusing. <laughs> you see, because love is confusing yes. because, because confusion occurs when the illusion of separateness turns into a perception. Mm -hmm. that, in other words, when the illusion of separateness yeah. breaks down. Right. And so, and, and so, um, in fact, one of the, what, the, there's a couple of ways to induce hypnotic um, uh, trances. Um, one of them is called, um, is, is some, is some scholars or some hypnotists, um, academics call it mother hypnosis and father hypnosis. The, the, the mother hypnosis is a very gradual, soothing, you know, you know, look into my eyes, your eyes are getting heavy, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to begin to water. And think, and, oh yeah, they are. Oh, and now they're they're beginning to blink. Oh yeah, they're blink. And it's a gradual feeding back of things that are already occurring until the mind becomes relaxed enough to take the external as the internal. Boundaries become confused. Yes, yes. The other way, which is sometimes referred to as the father technique, is kind of a rapid fire alternating. You're hot. You're cold. You're tall. You're short. You're this. You're that. You're mine. <laughs> you know which. Um, and, and so this, this confusion of not knowing what reality is and losing our sense, sense of boundary, not just between self and other, but between fact and fiction, between male and female, between any reality that is bipolar and breaks down, that becomes confusion, which is what Neptune's job is, because in the imagination, there are no boundaries. One of my loves throughout my life has been um, scuba diving. And when you get down to about 30 or 40 feet in the ocean, and you kind of, um, you know, stabilize your, your pressure, and you take a few deep breaths, and you go, oh. <laughs> and then you realize that there are no walls between you and anything in the ocean. Wow. It's very much like being in the unconscious in a dream. Yeah, yeah. There are no boundaries. Yes. You know, all the monsters, all the sharks, the Loch Ness, well, not Loch Ness because it's <laughs> locked up. But, but you know, but, but, but um, in a way, the thing about Neptune is that when boundaries are dissolved, we, the ego, the, the ego functions on the ability to say, this is what I, this is what Rick, this is what Shireen, the ego basically, you know, in the Freudian definition, it's about long-term survival. Survival of what? Of, of the illusion that I am separate from you. Yeah. And it's an important function because if I didn't have that illusion, 
I wouldn't survive. Yeah. I would melt back into the Neptunian, Piscean, you know, <laughs> ocean of the sludge of everything that is out there, you know, that eventually returns to the to the seas, whether it's the Pacific Ocean or the seas of consciousness, yes. it's still, that's Pisces, Neptune land. So with Mercury having gone through Pisces seemingly forever, yes, wrapped around this ultimate, this is real, with Saturn basically testing the limits of the boundaries of the authority and the structure and the banks and the finances and the governments and yes. the belief systems. And into that, it runs into Pluto, which says the most important things now shall begin to disintegrate. Yeah. They shall begin to disintegrate so that we can reconstruct them in ways like a butterfly that can happen on a higher order of intelligence. And into that whole mess comes Neptune and Mercury saying, yeah, but you don't know what's going on. You don't have the plan. You don't have the blueprint. You don't know what the mess is. You don't know where you're coming from and you don't know where you're going to. Yeah. Yes. Welcome and to my world. <laughs> How is that your world? <laughs> Because I'm an Aries and my world is your world is everyone's world. <laughs> well, how did you feel in, on April 10th when he, he finally, your ruling planet finally switched out of Pisces after that long, yeah. long experience? Well, I, look, my, my, my solar return was on the Jupiter, it was within 24 hours of the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction full moon. That was my solar return. What? <laughs> um, I definitely year. feel a, a return of some clarity, yeah. um, but but in my chart, you see um, Neptune. My my Neptune is at thirteen forty four Libra. Mm. My Venus is at thirteen forty four Aries. Oh, there you go. Now you want to talk about an opposition? That is a, um, in fact, because I have that in my chart, I've observed over the years and I've only seen maybe a half a dozen of these in all the charts that I've done over 30, 40 years of, of, of two planets, major planets in conjunction square or opposition that are at the same minute, not partile, not same degree, oh. but same degree and same minute. So my Neptune and my Venus are at the same degree and same minute. And my Neptune is not only opposed Venus, but it's also very tightly opposed the sun, Mars, Mercury, and square the moon. So I got a Neptune that kicks. You do, no wonder. And there you go with the, the wonder you look young at a young age. Because I feel like when you have that kind of a, I feel like people with those really epic oppositions are, they, we love young. Because he, he's, well, he's the yeah. And it, I, I, the I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the reconciliation of the opposites, right? That's like, how do you reconcile those opposites? Um, well, y y you don't and you do. Right. Uh, you, 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 you do um, by making shit up and by going to Neptune and basically going to, you, ch you change the rules of the game and you go to a different order of magnitude where those opposites are now points on some other dimension. Mm -hmm. You know, you, but- well, Or you've lived it with, with your, you know, your dance with the archetypes, your dance with the eternal, your dance with the infinite, your dance with these different, with the language of the sublime. Yeah, I've, I've said many times over the years, I mean, for 30 years, that if I didn't have to make a living, I would just write poetry, which is probably, and play music. I mean, poetry yeah. and music to me, 
And for me, astrology is a bit of both of those, mm -hmm. but it's a poor substitute, even though it's very useful. Um, poetry unto itself is poetry. Music unto itself is music. Poetry is as close as words can get to music. And astrology basically takes all of that and wraps it up. And that's my attraction to astrology. When I look at a chart, I'm not looking at a visual chart. I'm basically looking at a physical representation of the hum of the universe at that moment. You know, it's how are these, you know, we, we, we don't even think of this, but you know, um, in geometry, um, a chord is defined as um, the connection between two points on a circle. So if you have a circle and you connect two points, that's a chord. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in music, a chord is any two notes on the circle of harmonic vibrations wow. because it was Pythagoras who basically realized that, every, that any note to its octave is double or half the vibration. Mm -hmm. But it's basically the same point at another, at another octave. So music is not just 88 notes going from, you know, from, from the you know, low A all the way up to the high E or whatever the high note is, the 88 notes. It also creates this cycle. And when you create a chord, you're basically taking two points and on the circle, on the cycle, and we astrologers call chords aspects. Because, and when you're looking at a chart and you see an aspect or a configuration where you have a chord with several notes in it, a yeah. grand trine or a T-square um, or, or a quintile yod where you have three points on a five-pointed star like Jim Morrison and William Blake mm -hmm. with the same planets, except where Blake had a Saturn, he was an engraver and a traditionalist, even though he broke the mold, where he had Saturn, um, Morrison had Neptune. I mean, you can't make it up anymore, oh, amazingly. Oh, than that. Um, but, but in fact, astrology to me is basically, it's how, the, it's how light has tied itself into nodes, into knots, and it becomes the hum of the light as it's moving through our life, or I should say, maybe not as it's moving through our life, but maybe I should say as our life is moving through this physical mass that has its own trajectory. Well, that would um, make sense even. I was just thinking how, you know, here every morning we have these elaborate uh, fire rituals with Vedic chanting to the planets, you know, and how important it's like these offerings are, but the, it's the sound, you know, the, how these deities, planets as deities, will only respond to very specific tones. Like you have to get the sound just precisely. I, I totally, I, 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 I totally concur with that whole, yeah. I mean, that's part of my love of music. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it, it, yeah. And, and, and if there's one thing in, in the, well, there's lots of things in the Vedic tradition that I, that I really admire and, and, um, and, and use in my life. But um, the idea, um, not so much, I mean, one of the trouble, one of the problem spots I have um, in, in the Vedic tradition, because every astrology comes out of the time in which it was created. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I do have, uh, by the way, I listened to, t tell me the name of the kid who is. Uh, something. Abing I don't know how to say it. Abingya, Abingya. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was absolutely fascinated for about 20 minutes and then I turned it off. I said, I can't listen to this anymore. Um, and, and, and it's basically, 
um, the, the, and Western astrology does the same thing as what I'm going to say about Vedic astrology. It's just that Vedic astrology um, is more closely connected to its tradition Whereas in the West, we've reinvented or invented a modern tradition that now we have a throwback that many people are now going back to the ancient tradition too. And I have the same problem with some, not all. I don't have problems with the techniques or with the ideas or, or even the practitioners. But I have a problem with, with the way the languaging is phrased based upon what the life was, whether it was in in Greece or Rome or Spain in the 900s or in India during the, you know, you know, whatever period, things were much more um, fated. We didn't, we didn't have human growth. We didn't have the, you know, we didn't have the potential of going on a hero's journey. What the journey you went on was you were born into this body, you did your karma, you know, you, you went into war, you know, um, like Arjuna, you know, whether you were a pacifist or not, you did your duty and you died. And the better you did your duty, the better you were as a person. And, and that was something that was important yeah. at that time. Yeah. But I don't think it's important or important in the same way now, because, because what's important now is that each and every one of us goes on that journey inward, that hero's journey, whether you do it through whatever, whether you do it through breathing techniques or rebirthing or, or yoga or, or, or Jungian analysis or transpersonal analysis or Rolfing or, or Aikido or, or Wim Hof breathing or I don't care what <laughs> technique you use, it doesn't matter. But what happens is you confront your own shadow, you confront your own shit, and you basically try to live a life that allows your planets to hum in the best possible manner. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if you have a retrograde planet, yes. um, and let, let's say you had a retrograde planet um, 300 years ago or um, 1,000 years ago. Let's say it was a retrograde Venus just because we're coming up to a retrograde Venus. And I want to talk to you about that, and I was born as a retrograde Venus. Well, lucky you. Um, and I don't say that sarcastically. You see, because planets are like radio stations. And the closer we are to the source of the radio signal, the louder it is. Matter of fact, in Western astrology, there was a technique called distance values that seems to have fallen away. Mm -hmm. And the distance value was between zero and one, and it represented how close a planet could be versus how far a planet from Earth could be mm -hmm. and where it is in your chart. So if you were born with a retrograde planet, you know, retrograde planets are always closer to Earth than non-retrograde planets. And in fact, that's what makes them retrograde. We lose perspective. It's like being in the subway car and looking out the window and seeing the train on the track next to you going backwards and then realizing, oh, no, it's not going backwards. I'm just going faster than it forward. And it's so close, you don't have any perspective. Right. When Mercury or Venus get closest to earth, they're conjunct with the sun because they're on the same side of the earth as the sun, they're closest to the earth. Yeah. When Mars, Uranus, Nep Mar Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron, when any of those go retrograde, they're on the same side of the sun as the earth, but earth is in the middle, so they're in opposition to the sun. Yeah. 
but they're closest to Earth, which means if you have an outer planet, you know, in within, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, rough, roughly, you know, 90 degrees, it's less than that, actually. But if you have planets that are close to an opposition to the sun, that planet is louder than a planet, an outer planet that's conjunct the sun. Mm-hmm. Because if you have Pluto conjunct the sun, you have to go to the distance of the sun and then to Pluto. It's, it's 90, 90 million miles twice. It's 180 million miles um, you know, farther away. Mm. Interesting. Again, I'm not sure what happened. I'll be. Oh, here we go. So let's say let let's just hypothesize that you were born with a uh, with a Venus retrograde. Oh, you were. Okay. Um, <laughs> what that tells me is that Venus in your chart is louder than it is in quote-unquote normal charts. Now, that is fantastic if you can move into a space in your life where you can open up your heart, where you can learn how to love, learn how to receive love, where you can in some way engage in that dance with beauty and with the magic that's associated with, with aesthetic perfection. But if you're living on a farm, you know, you just need to weed the goddamn planets and shut the fuck up. Stop talking about how beautiful the clouds are. You know, in other words, if you have a retrograde planet, um, you know, Jung, I think, I heard Jim Lewis say this many years ago, and and it's something that um, I don't know the exact quote, but, you know, one of Jung's fascinations with astrology, I mean, really comes down to the point that every planet in the chart just wants to be heard. Yes. Every planet, you know, when, when, we, when we do analysis, we're basically learning those fragmented pieces that yes. have either been unconsciously repressed or yes. consciously suppressed. And we're trying to get in touch with them so that we can basically reclaim the power because in the shadow, they have power over us. We don't have power over them. And yes. so when we shine the light of awareness into the, into the shadow realms, into the cave, into the unconscious, that's when we begin to do the work. That's when we begin to do yes. the dance. Yes. Ancients didn't have that as an opportunity. That's a good point. So retrograde planets fucked them up mm-hmm. because they were so loud, they had nowhere to express what happens with unexpressed planets. Projection. And therefore... They were dealt with out there. Why is the 12th house such a difficult house? I know, because of the time. Because of it's exactly, that's a good point. Because it's, hit, because it's projected. Yeah. It's, if you think of it, it's the house of self-undoing. All right, well, what about, what about those people who were brought up in a spiritual tradition or stumbled onto it in their teen years and realized that their whole life was about um, undoing the self? <laughs> right, that's what happened to me with all my 12th house. Well, yeah. I mean, self-undoing is an incredible PowerPoint unless you don't know there's a self to undo, in which case you end up in a loony bin or a hospital or people ought to get you. But you see, this is how retrograde planets work. It's the same thing. In ancient tradition, there was nowhere to go with the energy. 
and 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 even in modern times often the venus retrograde or the mercury retrograde is if you're going to be like that go to your room oh don't talk about all that sweet stuff we don't need to hear that go go you know be real yeah. you know whatever and so we learn culturally to to suppress or or yeah. culturally we're forced to repress and those things become problematic but i do not believe that retrograde planets are are negative in any sense of the word I, although they can be if if you've not begun to do the work i'm so glad you brought that up you know that about that and even the 12th house and that could even we could even go into debilitated planets in that same sense like a debil debilitated sun could oh, be don't get me started about debilitated planets because although i have to say that there is there's a, there's a, it's important to know about and there's something there but the debilitations and the exaltations, the dignities are so sexist. Yeah. And astrology is exactly. sexist. Well, that was my point. I was going to say that, you know, two things. One, do you know Robert Thibodeau? Have you ever heard of him? That astrologer? Oh, yeah. I, I know. Ro I've, I haven't seen him in years, but I know Robert yeah. from the Wayback Machine. Oh, great. I love it. Yeah. He was my very first astrologer, you know, when I was, my dad took me to see him when I was like, in, I guess I was very young. I was not even in. Well, you you were tainted early on. Good for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It must have been like sixth grade or something, you know, and I wasn't necessarily spiritual then, but I remember I had already started trying to research books and things, and I'd read about the 12th house and about retrograde planets when I was reading really old school astrology books, and it was horrible, and I was like, oh my God, it's like I'm going to be in prison, and I'm going to be in a mental hospital, and yeah, yeah and I have all these... You well, you are, you are. You, you are. Right. Right now, I, you, you, you are in maybe one of the most beautiful, luckiest, magical mental hospitals on the planet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. I know. It's a good point. I'm in the most 12th house place in Venus, too. Like I'm even in a pink room during my Venus Dasha with the Divine <laughs> Mother protecting us, feeding us. Um, Anyone who tells me that, that Mars is debilitated in cancer has never seen a mother lion defend its cubs. You know, yeah. yes. you know, there's nothing on, it's basically totally sexist. It's like your Mars has to function like my Mars. Up a storm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I brought up Rob because he, luckily he was, I'm so glad I met him because he had the, you know, he did so much research, you know, he's another strong, I think he also has a Gemini. Um, he, Gemini I'm pretty sure. And he read everything. He was like quoting, like similar talking to you. Like he was like, you know, he's really into Rudolf Steiner and, all of those guys and he was like oh no he told there's another father, rabbit hole we'll have to leave that one for next time i know there's i know if i mention one name we could just go down there um but he said oh to my father no your daughter is going to be very spiritual and don't be surprised if like by the time she hits her saturn return she just goes to india and never comes back <laughs> and at that point i had no interest in any i was like what's this guy talking about you know i was into madonna I was like, what is he talking about but yeah you had a good, you had a good foresight. Um, Were you, did you grow up in Detroit? Were you in Detroit yeah. around that? Yeah. 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 So two clues. One is Robert Thibodeau and the other is Madonna. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, and Marion Williamson also there. Oh, and, um, but then I was going to say also about maybe the other one thing I was going to mention. Oh, my other big mentor, Edwin Steinbrecher. Do you know him? He was an Aries. I, Edwin and I got along really, really well. I, I mean, I lived in LA for a number of years um, and I was, and, and I wrote a monthly, well, a quarterly column for the old um, Aquarius Workshops Aspects Magazine uh, for about four years. That's where my quantum astrology 
I wrote a column called Quantum Astrology. This was 1990, 91, 92, 93. Oh. And so, yes, I, I mean, and I would bump into him in LA and around and about and, and, and uh, another very unconventional person, but, but we, I really admired his, him and his work. So, yes. Yes, you know, I, during my Saturn return, I went to LA for a few months and studied there, like in the dome, instead of their house there, you know? And that, I was so excited to find an astrologer. He was the one that first put together the Jungian archetypes with the astrology, the active imagination and the tarot. And he had that whole system laid out that he would read the charts that way. Now a lot of people do it sort of similar. You know, it's becoming more popular to break the chart down in terms of archetypes. But anyway, the reason I brought him up is because he actually said that um, the debility, he liked to look at the debilitation as like more conscious, unconscious, depending on like the yin yang, you know, not to make it like a sex gender thing, but like more the yin yang of the planet or the way it was being internalized. I thought that was very useful. I, that, that works for me, but I also look at, I, I, I also look at debilitations um, and, and uh, retrogrades and um, I, I, I look at them as um, how do I want I, I, levels of difficulty yeah. now um, so in Olympic competition in doing let's say diving mm -hmm. the judges give you two two numbers they give you a number on execution and they give you a number on level of difficulty so let's say you do an absolutely perfect swan dive and you might get a 9.9 .9 out of 10 on execution, but you get a four on, you know, level of difficulty. Mm -hmm. Whereas the next diver comes along and does a quadruple gainer, you know, with one and a half twists, you know, and whistles Dixie halfway through it. I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and he misses a note while whistling Dixie. So he only gets a 7.5 on execution, but he gets a 9.9 .9 in level of difficulty. Now, the thing is, is that you take planets, some of them are, I mean, look, it's a whole lot easier to work with a, you know, it, it's a whole lot easier to find pleasure with a Venus-Jupiter transit than it is with a Saturn-Mars-Saturn transit. Mm -hmm. But he who masters the Mars-Saturn is going to way out surpass in quality of experience, in, in accomplishment, in, in, in everything, the person who only masters the Jupiter, um, uh, the Venus Jupiter. Now, I, I'm not saying, uh, see, to me, they're not good or bad. Um, in fact, a, a Mars, I know someone who has a Mars Saturn conjunction in his chart, and this guy is one of the most successful, happy. He built an empire, he bankrupted five companies on the way to building a multi, multi, multi-million dollar health science company um, that is, is extraordinary. I'm just, I'm not going to mention the company because I, I, I have confidentiality over his chart, but, but he was in, he's in Aries with a um, Mars-Saturn conjunction in cap, I'm sorry, a Mars-Saturn conjunction in cancer. Wow. And so, and so he would go in and he would go in, he would take control, take over, and then he would push it and, and it would, sales would double, quadruple, and then explode, the company would die. And he did that like three or four times before he finally got it right 
and he built this company into something. I mean, he's retired now and the company is still uh, like, uh, or maybe the leading company in that field. But there's a Mars-Saturn conjunction um, that this guy learned how to work. One of the most productive people I've ever met in my life. Wow, amazing. Mm -hmm. So is that a debilitated Mars and Mars conjunct Saturn? Mm, You know, maybe for someone else. Yes, that's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. I absolutely agree. And yeah, and like for instance, like, um, you know, I was, when we were at, actually when we were at IBC a few years back and I was talking to Avi Sundaram, I love his work. Um, I hope I said his name right. Um, but you were talking to who? I missed who? Avi Sundram, was that his name? You know, the Vedic astrologer, Avi Sundram? Yes, yeah, yeah. What, what, I, I, don't, I didn't talk with him much, but a delightful man. Yes, I love him. And um, he, he was saying that he had, he was talking about like debilitated Sun or Shani or Saturn. And he said, you know, those, you've, it's similar to what you were saying about the execution because, and the level of difficulty, because he said you work harder to, make those planets conscious so they often do in the long run end up having strength or in the case of like a debilitated sun if it's it's similar to the 12th house if you're trying to work on like letting go of ego and coming into a more subtle version of the sun it can actually work to your advantage it depends on what the soul's doing you know i forgot who said the thing about like you know jesus maybe rob hand said that i don't know like jesus and the cockroach have the same chart have you heard that (laughs) Like to think right. about it's really the level of right, the and, they, and, they, and they both ended up a bloody mess. Oh no, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. Um, well, and and then there's the um, uh, wonderful uh, a man I met who thirty some odd years ago um, named Chogyam um, uh, Nagpa Chogyam Rinpoche. The Nagpa is um, he, he's a Vajra uh, Vajrayana Buddhist who Anagpa is, um, is someone who's into the chanting and the mantras. Um, yeah. And I think that the technical translation is, is um, awareness word wisdom master, mm. Anagpa. It's like a priest of words. He, he, this guy was British, Oxford graduate, and spent 20 years in Bhutan as a no bullshit, real McCoy given a real Vajrayana lineage um, and, uh, and he, and, and, you know, as you probably know from being on that circuit, um, you know, listening to a, uh, Rinpoche, a Lama, um, who doesn't speak English very well, um, is, is almost as bad as listening to the translator who speaks probably worse English than the original person. Um, but this guy spoke brilliantly and beautifully. He called himself mantra man. Love it. And he said, um, so um, someone said, so, so, so um, um, Rinpoche, what's, what's, um, what, you know, is it fate or free will? And he, and he, and he kind of paused and he says, imagine you're walking down the street and it's a beautiful day and you're whistling, the sun's out and everything is just perfect. And you see these guys that are doing some brickwork on the building up in front of you, like on the second story. And you kind of put it into your mind and you take a step forward. And as you walk forward, one of them knocks a brick off and it lands on your foot and it breaks your foot. 
and all, I mean, immediately you're in pain, you're hurting, you're, you know, and you, and, and, and it's like, ah, and you, you know, and you look up and they don't even know that they knocked the brick off and you go, Hey guys, you know, you yell up to them, you know, be careful. Um, and you know, and they don't, they're just laughing now and they don't even know what they did. And now you're beginning to get angry because you're yelling and they can't hear you. And you realize you have such a steep, you know, um, um, you know, vertical line to them that you're not, they, they don't even see you. And so you take about 10 steps backwards and you yell up to them. And at that moment, a truck comes down the street, runs you over and kills you. Fate or free will. And he says, the brick landing on your foot is an act of fate, but your death was an act of free will. Yeah, that's great. And so, so what happens to us is often in the realms of fate but how we respond to it is free will which we don't get to exert all the time at the same level of energy in fact one of the magic things about any spiritual practice yoga being the harnessing of the yoke the yug um you know the of, of the oxen is basically um learning to harness the energy so that when you need it it's there yeah. you know yeah. And, and so this idea of, um, I think it was Thomas Jefferson said, um, uh, it, it, it's the more I prepare, the luckier I seem to get. Yes, I love that. <laughs> you know, and so, and, and, and so, yeah, there's, it's an interesting dance that we do between, you know, good and bad and, and fate and free will and what's in the chart and what's not. And I think that we probably live in a world where we have way more flexibility um, to do ourselves in or to do ourselves up than, than people did in the past. Absolutely. No, that's a very important point. And it's interesting, like the whole idea of fate versus free will and how we respond to the things that are fated. Like none of us can control that. This, this is all, this is all our collective fate that this is happening right now. But then there's like the individual fates within that. And then everyone, of course, quoting Victor Frankl's work now, which I love. I knew he was going to have a, come back during this time because of his brilliance around like, you know, that the only freedom we really have is how we're going to interpret what happens to us yeah. and how we want to experience it internally. And that's what you were saying with the yoga and the spiritual practices is the only kind of preparation we could have for something like this. Now, last but not least, I know I'm taking a lot of your time. I just want to cover one more subject if possible. Thank God you're a night owl. Um, if we could talk about the Venus about to retrograde in Gemini, because I was thinking a couple things. One, I thought, thank God we have Venus in Gemini during this quarantine because that's the perfect Venus for this time because we can just sit around and read books and do podcasts and Venus loves that, enjoying all of that. And again, we have to be careful because I agree with you, but there are people out there who do not read books. There yeah. are people who do not do or look at podcasts. There are people who just turn on Fox TV and just get themselves lathered up into more fear. So yeah. I'm just... I'm, I, I'm just saying that that we we need yeah. to keep in in perspective yeah. that we are in a very um, um, privileged and hopefully um, will take over the consciousness, but I don't think it's going to be that simple. But yes, there is that fragmentation of yeah. of what we like and the ability to amuse ourselves. I mean, I I I have a Cancer Moon with all that Gemini stuff. My Cancer Moon is like, it's, it's like a pig in mud. I am so happy that 
I don't have to go out. I mean, I take a walk or a jog or a run along the river. I live on a river. And so I do some breathing every day. I do some, you know, some, some good oxygenation. Um, but I haven't been to a store. I haven't been to someone's house. I haven't been out for almost a month. And I'm not counting because I like this. <laughs> and I, I mean, I canceled the trip to, to Boulder. I canceled the trip to Toronto. And I canceled the trip to Costa Rica. And I just found out today that I'm canceling a trip to your old neck of the woods, to the Great Lakes Conference in, um, um, in Ann Arbor. So, I mean, I, and I love traveling, yeah. but yeah. I'm okay without going anywhere for a while. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, sorry. Just... No, no. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And I was looking at kind of the shallow, bright Gemini side, like the, you know, more immediate, not taking in the full. I know that's very, kind of a very limited perspective of Venus and Gemini, but I was trying to find a, my Sagittarius rising was trying to find a nice uh, high point of <laughs> the Venus situation, but also Venus being retrograde during this time. Yeah. I mean, I guess it will, what I really wanted to bring up with that actually was um, a deeper subject going back to what we said with Mercury wrapping its way around Neptune and Pisces. And so now it's interesting to think that even during this Venus retrograde, it's going to cycle back to Mercury. Again, since Mercury well, is in Gemini, I think it's going to bring us back to Mercury territory. Yeah, and and then Venus retrograde, I think, will actually um, retrograde back to its trine with Saturn, um, which it did earlier. Um, and, and the Venus-Mars dance right now is very peculiar because it's happened, but it's not really ever going to happen quite again, even though Venus is the quote-unquote faster moving of the two. Venus is at 11 Gemini, and um, and Mars is at 12 Aquarius, but Venus is slowing down. <laughs> you know, Mars is moving faster than Venus right now. Yeah. And so this 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 whole dance with 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 Venus um, immutable, um, I think, is going to be interesting, and it's important. But it's also important that it's not just going to be Venus. I mean, we have we we, we have basically all the planets. I mean, yes, they're all within the nodes, but yeah. they're all right now on the same side, you know, um, of, of the sun. Um, I mean, they're, they're all like within the same hemisphere as the sun, but as the sun moves onward, they're going to one by one, the outer planets are all going to turn retrograde. You know, Pluto, I think, is the first, yeah. but we're going to Pluto, Jupiter, um, Sat we're going to Venus, Pluto, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars and Mercury all turning retrograde over these next months. Yeah. And, um, and that intensifies the energy. Again, yeah. it's a whirlpool. I'm not saying that retrogrades can't be problematic. When Mars goes retrograde, the planet gets angry. Yes. You know why? Because it's not good at expressing Mars in a healthy way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so we'll see where all this goes. But the Venus yeah. retrograde, I think, is an important piece in this. Yes, and maybe that's giving us like a clue to what will come up like in the summer with the Mars retrograde. I get, no, Mars is retrograding in September, right? Yeah, and it does that in Aries, right around Aries. my Aries planet. So oh, I know. We'll I'll, I'll have another podcast with you at that time to check in on that. Wait, um, and, and 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 if we're allowed to travel, I will be hopefully in, back in Indonesia by October, November, December, January, or at I least hope in that. So. Yeah, I hope so. I, um, 
and you just had your Mercury return, you said, and I wondered if you had any downloads on the Mercury Chiron conjunction, because that might be also making some interesting. Yeah, you know, you see, the thing is, is that as Mercury moved into Aries, yeah. um, Mercury began first, it picked up on the trine to Saturn. I'm, I'm sorry, the sextile to Saturn. And, and then it picked up on the conjunction to Chiron. And then it's, it's right now coming into the sextile first to Venus. Mercury right now is at 10, um, Aries, Venus is at 11, um, Gemini, and Mars is at 12, Aquarius. So we have Venus and Mars kind of lockstepped, almost moving at the same rate in this not quite exactly perfected, well, actually already perfected, but it looks like it's going to perfect, but it doesn't quite. And Mars, I'm sorry, and Mercury comes right through the middle point of that, and Mercury conjuncting Chiron, sextiling Venus, sextiling Mars, um, while all this is going on, um, I think is very profound, and it comes from a standpoint of, I mean, we always talk about Chiron as the wounded healer. And there certainly is, I mean, when people want a good book to read on Chiron, as much as I love Melanie and her book, as much as I love, I mean, there are, there's some really good material on Chiron. My go-to Chiron book, which I always have two or three copies on my bookshelf to give to a client because I scour Amazon for the used books and they come up and they're cheap because it's out of print, is Robert Johnson's The Story of the Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. Oh. That, you know, you know, Robert Johnson, okay, he, of course. They, um, uh, uh, we, um, brilliant Jungian, um, be, Jungian yeah. analyst. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Passed away passed a handful away of years ago. Yeah. Huh? yeah, exactly. Well, he wrote a book um, called The Story of the Fisher King and the Story of the Handless Maiden. These are, the book is divided in half. They're, they're two separate stories one that deals with the male and one that deals with the feminine archetype and the subtitle of the book. So there, there are two stories, the story of the handless maiden, the story of the Fisher King, both of which arose during the grail period, you know, I don't know, four, five, six hundred AD Western Europe in that period of time, somewhere in there. So this, the, the title of the book is the story of the Fisher King and the handless maiden. And then the, um, subtitle, which I always miss a word on, I never quite get exactly right, but it's very close to a critical analysis of the wounded feeling function in Western society. A critical analysis of the wounded feeling function in Western society. And it's the story of how the Fisher King and the Handless Maiden are both different ways of how the too much feelings turns into a repression or suppression or a denial. And then you know, um, um, Parsifal, who meets the Fisher King, goes to the Grail Castle, um, but can't quite muster up the vulnerability to say, I don't know what's going on, what's wrong with you, and, and, and what's, what's the ceremony, you know. And, the, and the, the thing is that although the vulnerable woundedness of Chiron is, is certainly important, there's another aspect that's, I think, even more important or as important. Mm -hmm. And the first person that ever prompted my thinking on this um, was, do, do you know Antero Ali? Yes. You know, uh, so Antero wrote a book, ooh, I'm guessing 90, 1992. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and and Antero, for those people who don't know him, is actually a um, a filmmaker um, who makes his living doing astrology, but he's not an astrologer who likes to make films. <laughs> right. He basically, astrology is his day job um, and he does it well, um, but his real thing is um, the, the, you know, kind of pushing people into experiencing um, reality in Parath different ways. Paratheatrical stuff, right? Paratheatrical para para theater. Um, in his astrology book called Astrologic, L-O-G-I-K, he notes that, that every planet is discovered as something comes into consciousness around that planet. You know, Neptune, it was the steam engine and the whole rise of, of fantasy and the, you know, yeah. the theosophy and all, okay, all that. Um, Uranus was, you know, the, the French and American revolutions and, and, and Franklin's electrical work with lightning and, and the awareness and, and, and Pluto mass fascism and, yeah. you know, the early 30s. And that Chiron was discovered in 1977, the year of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> I love how you put it with that. Well, something got me thinking. You see, Chiron, Chiron was the original mentor. Chiron was um, was um, the teacher of Asclepius. Chiron, um, Chiron was. I mean, not only was he a healer. Um, and the whole wound thing, and that's a whole rabbit hole that we're not going into right now. But Chiron also, he played outside the rules. Yeah. Chiron is infra-Saturnian. Chiron comes inside of Saturn's orbit, which touches the three-dimensional reality. Mm -hmm. And then it goes outside of Uranus's orbit. Mm -hmm. So Chiron is really, I mean, and, and Chiron, more than being a healer, more than being a teacher, Chiron is a maverick. Chiron is, is, is the cattle that doesn't run with the herd because, because he's both Uranian and Saturnian. Yeah, because bridging both, yeah. And, and, so, and so the wound is how do we take the awareness of the aha experience and what we learn when kundalini strikes or lightning strikes or the aha experience of the nerve firing and we go <laughs> uranus yeah and how do we work with that in the three-dimensional world which is un-uranian it's constrained we have to stay inside the boundary so i think that you, you um that chiron's role here has been very powerful because it's acted as a mediator in this whole thing with not only the ongoing, I mean, Venus and Mars have been trying longer than they ever are trying because they're both, because Venus is slowing down and speeding I mean, and, and going at the same speed as Mars is. And so normally that trying, because normally Venus moves faster, Venus moves into that trying and a week later that trying's gone. And it's been being held now for, for weeks and yep. it will be held for weeks. And it's Mercury that comes into the middle of that as it's dancing with Chiron. And in fact, when we go back um, just a couple of months ago, we had Venus first move into Aries and it joined up with Chiron. Then the sun, you know, um, just a few days after the equinox right. yeah. um, around the full moon. And then yeah. we had, um, uh, Mercury now coming just across it. And so I think that there is an opportunity for healing 
But again, I think that the opportunity is also about Chiron, the mentor, the teacher, and about the unveiling, about the how do we take the aha experience and bring it into the three-dimensional world, which is maybe partly what's going on now. And it doesn't matter what side of a political fence you're on. In fact, that's all completely confused yeah. because we have... Um, I mean, Trump may come out in this whole thing as the ultimate hero because chloroquine, um, you know, may in fact, it's what's being used in China and in Korea as a delivery mechanism for zinc. I don't want to go down too far this, you know, down, down this rabbit hole too far. Um, but as soon as Trump mentioned it, everyone said, oh, he has interest in a company. He's doing this for profit. And I'm not a Trump fan, just to be perfectly clear here. But I'm trying to illustrate yeah. <clears throat> how confusing boundaries are right now, because he came out with this and immediately everyone said he's an idiot. He thinks this is going to cure everything. And now, in fact, there are a lot of people who know that chloroquine can't possibly be a solution because it was Trump's idea, when in fact, it might be the thing that is the delivery mechanism with zinc that might be the thing that prevents the need for us all becoming victim right. to Bill Gates vaccination and the world. And then is withholding money from the World Health Organization. You know, um, when you start digging in this, you realize that the largest contributor to the World's Health Organization is also the largest single investor in Monsanto, and that's Bill Gates. And I, um, you know, I don't want to go down. I mean, it's not about conspiracies. It's about looking at the facts and connecting wow. the dots. Wow. And remember, the word apocalypse is revealing. Yes. It's, it's uncovering. It's seeing what's there. Mm -hmm. And so you might be a Trump fan and yet be totally down on him. I'm not saying you. Just I'm joking. saying there are enough there, are, there are out there. And, and, and you might be a total Trump fan and say Trump is now going to be a hero because he's keeping money from the Gates, you know, um, vaccine thing. He's firing Fauci, who is basically a pawn in the pharmaceutical game. Um, and yet there are people also who are saying, but he's, a, he's botched this because of the ventil. I mean, it doesn't matter what you believe politically or not. The, the lines now are totally messed up. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's no longer, it no longer works saying, I believe this and don't believe that, or I think that this is the case, but Trump's an idiot. And again, he may be an idiot, but he's standing in some place that is doing something at this moment that may be the precipitate, um, the precipitant for whatever it is that's unfolding. And I'm not a Pollyanna, but I'm also not a pessimist. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not, I'm a possibilist. And I'm looking at this as what do we do now? What we do is we acknowledge that we've stepped through the metaphysical mirror. We acknowledge that we've moved on. We're like Dr. Seuss in his famous book, On Beyond Zebra. You know, we've now moved on beyond Saturn. We're in realms where right, wrong, good, bad, up, down, male, female, you know, correct, incorrect, yes, no, um, red, blue, Republican, Democrat, they, none of those have meaning anymore because in the, these realms, we are con- fused, which is only bad for the ego who thinks it needs to know where it is and where it's going and how it's going to get there. But being confused is the first step toward um, the hero's journey.
It begins the spiritual path. It begins that journey. Doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. And I don't mean the vaccinated, created autistic spectrum, if that's your reality construct. I mean, on the spectrum of spiritual awakening, wokeness, whatever you want to call it, you know, you can be a dead potato and have someone close to you die of this disease and then begin to read stuff and go, holy shit, they're not, you know, this person didn't have to die. They're not telling me the truth. And so there's, there's sparks of awakening here. And one last thing I want to say mm -hmm. about Uranus's role, which will become more significant, you know, over the next um, year and a half as Saturn in Aquarius squares three times, it's already within orb of squaring Uranus. Mm -hmm. Now remember we've had Uranus squaring, you know, the Pluto, um, yeah. you know, we're coming off that. But Uranus in um, squaring Pluto from Aries is a very different game because Uranus is about electrical, sudden, lightning-like um, change. Uranus only has one job. Uranus's job is the instantaneous resolution of irresolvable opposites. That's it. I love that. You know, when you, you have opposites that can't be resolved, <laughs> crash, earthquake, lightning, holy shit, it's out in the open, something happens. And that which was absolutely impossible to deal with, all of a sudden, everyone knows, and you just need to go on and integrate it. Yeah. Uranus's job is the instantaneous resolution of irresolvable opposites. Um, wow, very Jungian in, there, too. In, in Aries, Uranus had a field day, because every time there was a pair of opposites, Uranus could just go, boom, resolve, boom, resolve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, in Taurus, Taurus don't like that guy. Taurus don't like change. Taurus wants yeah. the status quo. Taurus is Newton's third law. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. You know, and along comes Uranus and says, change, change, you need to change, you need to change. I ain't changing. You need to change, you need to change. I ain't changing. Well, what that means is instead of getting lots and lots and lots and lots of, of, of continual change for seven years that Uranus gave us when it was in Aries, now we're getting fear resistance, fear resistance, crash. Holy shit. The changes won't happen as often, but they'll be way bigger because the earth, when it changes, is an earthquake rather than a tidal wave, rather than, you know, rather than a change in a weather pattern. And so the Uranus, when over the next couple of years, when the Saturn pushes to squaring Uranus, we will see the ramifications and reverberations of what's being set up here now yeah. on a whole different scale. And all I can say is that, that, you know, because of Neptune's role in this, you know, it, 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 it ain't what, it ain't what it is, whatever it is, it ain't whatever anyone says this is he, she, they are wrong. Or it's not that they're wrong. Uh, Niels Bohr once said the opposite of the opposite of truth is not false. The opposite of truth is not truth. <laughs> or confusion. Huh? Confusion. Confusion. Anyhow, yeah, that's we've, we'll call, we've okay. Maybe that's what we'll call hour into, into two. Beautiful. And then maybe that's what we'll call this episode, confusion. Yeah, or part one and part two. Part one, confusion, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe part, maybe we'll have two parts. But just remember, yeah. after confusion, there is spiritual awakening. Or there can be. Look, 
confusion leads in two different directions. It, it, it is the opening volley of many people on the path. And that path first has to go downward. You know, it's Joseph Campbell again. You know, the cave you fear is the one that holds the greatest treasure. So going down and into the dark and into the anger, into the fear, into the uncertainty, into the unknown, that's all cool. But there are people who, when confronted with that same set of circumstances, take a different route. And that's denial. Yeah. And that then just increases the projection. And I'm afraid we will see that regardless of how all this moves forward and resolves. Um, it ain't over. And it ain't what we think it is, regardless of what we think it is. Yes. Well, Welcome to the hero's journey of, of humanity. <laughs> yeah. Well, brilliantly executed this whole discussion. <laughs> so much wisdom and um, wow. So much to think about and I think people are going to be, this is one of those episodes I'm sure people are going to want to re-listen to or listen to in chunks. It's kind of like a really good book, like a really good Marie-Louise von Franz book. You know, you have to read it in very small segments because each piece has so much. At the risk of showing my ignorance, I don't know who that is. Oh, she's the Jungian analyst. She's, she was actually, I think in some ways might have even not to, no disrespect to Jung, but she was his greatest disciple and may probably surpassed him. You would love her work. You should check it out. She did a lot Got of stuff synchronicity, divination. Marie-Louise von Franz, yeah. I can send you, I'll send you some links. Since Good, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and as much as I love being here, there's a part of me right now that is missing um, Southwest India. Um, I never made it up to the ashram, but I did spend some time in Kerala and I've taught in Goa and, um, you know, and I absolutely, uh, I mean, in my limited travels through India, um, I, I refer to that neck of India as India light, <laughs> you know, and, and I like, and I, I like it. It's, it's, to me, it's, um, it is just a whole lot more gentle, gentle. you know, than, than some of my other. Huh? It's. I wouldn't say it's light, but it's. It's. Well, it has a lot of light, but I would say it's. It's very feminine. It's very motherly. This section of India. It's yeah. When I said light, I. I meant like Miller light. I mean, it's like. It's like. It's like India light. It's just. It's. It's like the light. It's like the. The easier to um, drink yeah, version. Yeah. It's very. India. Yeah. It's very. It's very motherly. Very nurturing in the south of India. I'm so glad you got to experience it, and um, I hope you get to come back soon. And, uh, Me too, and thank you, and let's stay in touch, and we, we shall. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>